You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our gracious Father, we are so thankful for your word. It is to us such a clear and perfect revelation of you and your will for us, and we thank you that you have given it to us. And each and every day when we open it up to read it or we memorize it or to meditate upon it, we find that there are gems and truths here which are precious beyond description and so many things that you have promised to us and so many things that you have revealed. And so we are grateful for them, and and we are on the threshold of such a marvelous passage this morning. We pray that you would give to us understanding of, of this great chapter in your word that we may uh, see Christ in all of his glory that we may understand the fullness and the glory of our triune God and that you would be honored today through the preaching of your word help that to to happen we have the confidence that when your word is rightly preached your voice is truly heard and may it be heard here this morning we ask in Christ's name amen well John chapter 17 we are going to we're on the brink of starting another chapter uh, in John's Gospel, finished chapter 16 last week. And this chapter, John 17, is is unique, very unique in John's Gospel. In many ways, it is unlike anything we have seen yet in the Gospel of John. And in other ways, it is like everything we have seen so far in the Gospel of John. And I hope you will see that. It, it is very unique and yet very familiar, unique in terms of its uh, unique in terms of its approach and its length and and the, the subject of it, but very familiar in terms of the themes and the theology of it. So John chapter 17, it's been a while since we did an overview of a chapter, and what, what I'm doing today is kind of giving you a flyby or an overview of this 17th chapter because I'm treating it as if it were separate from the upper room discourse, verses four, uh, chapters 14 through 16, but at the same time it is connected to the upper room discourse. So we're, we're handling it a little bit like it's separate, but a little bit like it is connected because it is connected, but it deserves really its own introduction. Now, if you've only joined us um, in the Gospel of John since chapter 14, verse 1, then you're unfamiliar with how our introductions go and why I introduce some chapters. So let me give you a, a couple of words of purpose here as to why we're giving an overview of John chapter 17. This helps us to get, when I do an overview like that, it helps us to get the introductory details of a passage of Scripture out of the way. So we can kind of deal with context and flow and how it fits with John and introduce a big passage and, and get some of those details out of the way, out on the table, so that in future sermons and studies together we can just refer back to those things without me having to lay a lot of groundwork as we're working our way uh, through the passage itself. A second, it helps us to get kind of a big picture idea of where this passage fits in all of John, all of the gospel. Uh, we study scripture on on levels, at certain levels. Sometimes we study individual words to find out how that word contributes to the meaning of its context and what the significance even of an individual word is in a passage. And sometimes we study sentences, sometimes paragraphs, sometimes entire chapters. And so we need to understand God's word on all of those levels, knowing that every word is part of a sentence, every sentence is part of a paragraph, every paragraph is part of a book. Every book is part of the entire canon of Scripture, all 66 books. So we want to make sure that we're zooming out, as it were, every once in a while to to get an overview of what's in front of us so that we don't get lost in the details. And then as we go through the details, as we zoom in, even maybe on individual words in the weeks ahead, it will help us to, to put all of those details into an overall framework. So I'm going to give you an overview of John chapter 17. I'm going to give you some introductory information to the chapter, and then we're going to read through, and I'm going to give you a, a quick 
And it will be a shallow exposition of the entire 17th chapter as we look at all 26 verses. And then, Lord willing, next week, uh, when we all show up here, no matter how late we are up on the 4th of July, next week we are going to get into the details of John 17, starting back at verse 1. So here's just a, a bit of a background for the uh, 17th chapter of John. This is a prayer of Jesus. The whole, whole, the whole chapter is known as the high priestly prayer. And you say, why is it called the high priestly prayer? If you read through John 17, you won't notice the words high priestly prayer anywhere in the text. John doesn't call it the high priestly prayer, though in my NASB Bible at the beginning of John 17, it has the little note that the publishers added there calling it the high priestly prayer. Why is it called that? It is called that because, and I think it's the perspective of history and the perspective of, of, of Bible understanding theology. Jesus is today our high priest. He sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us as his people. John 17 is the intercession of Jesus Christ for his people. And we're going to get into that as we work our way through the text. You'll see that he prays for the disciples, the eleven, and he prays for us as well. Not, not just generically, as in people who may believe future Christians, but those who have believed upon him as a result of the testimony of and the ministry of the twelve disciples, of, or of those eleven and the disciples who would come, Paul, Paul etc. So the Lord Jesus is in this passage praying for us. And we get a view here as to what concerns the Lord Jesus Christ concerning his people in his absence while he is with the Father at the Father's right hand. And there are things here which I, we can well imagine that the Lord Jesus would be praying for us even right now. Some of these things we could easily see transitioning into his work as our high priest right now. So since he is our high priest who offers intercession, prays for us to the Father at the Father's right hand, we have here the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. So for that reason, it is called the high priestly prayer. Now what's interesting is that John doesn't give us any notations about where this prayer was prayed or when this prayer was prayed. He doesn't specify that. You'll notice chapter 17, verse 1 just says, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, etc. So John doesn't tell us where Jesus prayed this or when he prayed it. So we have to deduce a few things from the greater context. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. After the prayer, 18 verse 1 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now, into which garden did Jesus enter with his disciples? It was the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where he prayed to the Father, uh, Not my will but done, let this cup pass before me, but not thy will be done. That's where the disciples had a little nap while Jesus was off praying and the disciples fell asleep and he came back and reproved them. Those details are contained in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not in the Gospel of John. So where or when was this prayer prayed? Well, sometime between crossing the Kidron Valley and leaving the upper room where he had dinner with his disciples in chapter 13 and chapter 14. Because remember, chapter 14 ended with Jesus saying, I do as the Father has commanded me, get up, let us go from here, and then we go right into the vine and the branches analogy. So Jesus had a meal with the disciples. That was where he washed their feet. A Judas left, and everybody thought he was going off to buy something for the feast or to make arrangements or to give something to the poor. So Judas left, and then Jesus gave them this discourse. At some point in the middle of the discourse, chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus said, get up, let us go from here. And they got up and they departed. Presumably, he is leaving this that that room and walking through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he enters in chapter 18, verse 1. Now, the Kidron Valley, or river, mentioned in chapter 18, verse 1, that ran down the east side of the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sat up on kind of a mountaintop or a knoll, a hilltop, as it were, uh, sort of a flat area there. The temple was to the eastern part of the city, 
And right down the eastern side of that temple and the eastern side of that city ran the city wall. And immediately off the edge of that, and I'm doing east-west by my, but you're backwards, but immediately off the edge of that was the valley, the Kidron Valley and the Kidron River ran down that to the south of Jerusalem. And there at the south end, southeast end of the city of Jerusalem, there was the water gate. And right outside the water gate was a bridge that crossed the Kidron River. So at some point between leaving the upper room after dinner and exiting the city, somewhere in there we have chapter 15, chapter 16 said, and the prayer in chapter 17. So we have to imagine Jesus stopping somewhere inside the city of Jerusalem and lifting up his eyes to heaven and praying this prayer. And, and that's all we can determine as to its time and its location. This is a unique and a profound prayer. It is unique because of its length. This is the longest prayer of the Lord Jesus recorded in any of the four Gospels, the longest one, and actually the longest one by far. We have plenty of examples of Jesus praying, Jesus praying before he healed people, Jesus praying before he cast out demons, Jesus praying before meals, Jesus praying before he did other miracles like multiplying bread and fish. We have examples of Jesus praying, some of them short, uh, some of them very long, but this is the longest one. And sometimes we refer to, we all know when I talk about when I mention the Lord's Prayer, what is the Lord's Prayer? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, etc. That's what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's kind of a misnomer because that's not a prayer that Jesus could have ever prayed. It's a prayer that he told the disciples to pray. He was teaching the disciples to pray that, but Jesus could never have prayed that prayer because that prayer has, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who trespass against us. And our Lord could never ask for forgiveness of sins as he forgave others. He was a forgiving Savior, but he never had any sin to ask forgiveness for himself. This, John 17, this is the Lord's Prayer. Not the one that we call the Lord's Prayer. That's really the disciples' prayer. That's something the disciples could pray. But the disciples could not pray this. Only the Lord could pray this prayer. This is what we should be calling the Lord's Prayer. And this is a glorious and a profound prayer that our our Lord offers to the Father in this passage. So it is unique because it is the longest prayer. It is also unique because of its timing. Uh, This is the prayer that is prayed to the Father when Jesus is only hours from returning back to heaven to the Father. Within 24 hours, he will have died on the cross and be buried, and he will have returned and gone into paradise. So this is the prayer that is uttered by the Savior of mankind, the Redeemer of mankind, on the cusp, right on the edge of him sacrificing himself and giving himself for the lives of his people. As the Lord is preparing for the cross, this is the prayer that he prays. So it is unique because of its timing. It is also unique in all of the four Gospels. There are no, There is nothing like this. Nothing like it in its scope, nothing like it in its length, nothing like it in its themes or its theology anywhere in the other Gospels. This is unique, unique in John and unique in the other four Gospels as well. Not only is it unique in the other four Gospels, this is the most unique prayer in all of Scripture, and I will tell you why. All of the other prayers that are recorded in Scripture, the prayers of Moses, the prayers of David that we find in the Psalms, the prayers of Solomon, the prayers of the saints and the righteous and the prophets, all of those prayers are prayed by sinful men, about their immediate circumstances. This prayer is prayed by the sinless Son of God to the Father, by one who is in perfect communion with the Father. So it is a unique prayer in all of Scripture. There is nobody ever who has ever lived, who could ever, or who has ever, prayed anything like what we find in John chapter 17. So it's unique because there's nothing like it anywhere in Scripture. One final closing observation, and this is actually a very long observation, so don't get your hopes up. One final closing observation. This prayer really is the culmination of the first 16 chapters of John's Gospel. It's the culmination of it. It is the end of the extended teaching times in John. 
From this point forward, chapter 18 and 19, is no, there's no more discourses. There's no more extended teaching. Jesus does talk. But in chapter 18 and chapter 19, we have the arrest of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, and the crucifixion of Jesus. Then in chapters 20 and 21, which round out the end of the Gospel of John, we have the resurrection and the resurrection appearances. So this really, this prayer marks the end of all of the teaching of our Lord by means of discourses and of miracles. It stands alone at the end of that and serves as a perfect transition to the cross because it really is the culmination or the summing up of all of that teaching in the first 16 chapters. Not only that, it is the perfect summary of really everything that he has taught the disciples in the farewell discourse in chapters 14 through 16. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says this is the most perfect prayer prayed after the most perfect sermon ever delivered. The farewell discourse being the most, the best sermon ever preached, and this prayer being the best prayer that has ever been prayed. So J.C. Ryle says the best sermon that was ever preached is followed by the best, best prayer that has ever prayed. Meaning that there is an inseparable connection between what he has taught them in chapters 14 through 16, and this prayer and what he prays for them in chapter 17. These things are are intimately connected. In the discourse, we see Jesus telling them that he is leaving them. In John chapter 17, he prays for them while he is gone. In the discourse, Jesus tells them that he is going back to the glory of the Father. In chapter 17, Jesus prays about that glory that he is about to enter into and prays that he might be glorified with the Father, with the glory that he had with the Father before the world ever began. In the discourse, Jesus told the disciples that he was leaving them here to do a ministry and to carry on that work and that he would empower them and strengthen them with the Holy Spirit to do the ministry. Now in John chapter 17, he prays for them while they are here doing that ministry and prays for those who would believe upon Christ as a result of the ministry that the disciples do in his strength and in his power. And in John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus tells us of the love of the Father for his people, the love of the Father for the Son, and the love of the Son for the Father, and the love of the Son for his people. And then in chapter 17, he prays that that love that the Father has for the Son and that the Son has for his people and that the Son has for the Father, that that love would be manifested in the unity and in the love and in the glory that his people enjoy not only here but also in the world that is to come. So this is the culmination of all of that teaching in the Upper Room Discourse. In many ways, this is really the summation of all of the themes even in the Gospel of John. I did something interesting this last week. I sat down and I read through John chapter 17 and I took note and I made a list of all of the themes, the subjects, the theologies that we find in the 17th chapter of John that we have seen already in the Gospel of John. And so I made a list of those themes and here they are. I'm going to read them to you and as I do, and I'm not going to read them as quickly as I'm talking now, I'm going to give you some time to think uh, between each one. But I'm going to read you this list of themes and as I do, you're going to hear yourself thinking to yourself, yeah, I remember that. That was chapter 5, that was chapter 6, that was chapter 10. So here's the list of themes. These are the subjects that come up in John chapter 17. The glory that is shared by the Father and the Son. The authority that the Son has been given over men. The authority of the Son to give eternal life to his people. The theme of eternal life. Belief and unbelief. Knowing God. The Father giving a people to the Son. The Son receiving a people and dying for them in order to save them. The pre-existence of the Son. The Father sending the Son into the world, the Son coming into the world in obedience to the Father. The Father giving a work to the Son to accomplish, and the Son accomplishing the work in perfect obedience to the Father. The relationship between the Father and the Son. The love of the Father for the Son. Believers being chosen out of the world. Believers being left in the world. Believers being hated by the world. The world hating Jesus. Jesus not being of this world. Christ leaving this world. The mission of Christians in this world the unity of the persons of the Godhead, 
the oneness of the Father and the Son, the unity of believers with God, Christians having joy, the world does not know the Father, the security of the believer in Jesus Christ, the appointed hour of the glory of the Father and the Son, believers being with Christ in heaven, obedience to God and keeping God's word, distinction between those who belong to Christ and those who do not, the theme of Scripture being fulfilled, and a reference to Judas leaving them and departing from them. Now, did you can you think of other places in the Gospel of John where those themes cropped up? Now, if you did this exercise in reverse, if you went into chapters 1 through 16, and you simply made a list of all the theologies and the themes that you see in the first 16 chapters, guess what you would find? You would find almost that identical list. In fact, I went through here and I, I put next to each one of these notes a, a chapter where this theme is developed or mentioned more than one time where we have, we have camped on those themes and all 16 chapters in John's Gospel are mentioned here. So here's what we have. In John chapter 17, all of the teaching, all of the theology, and all of the themes are all woven together in this masterful presentation of everything Jesus has said and taught. And it is prayed out before the Father concerning the disciples and His people. All of the theology of John is boiled down into a prayer, and it is in John chapter 17. It is a profound, bottomless, unfathomable wealth of riches and jewels and theological truths and gems. Almost inexhaustible. In fact, you want to see something beautiful? Right there. Now that is a book. It's called The Assurance of Our Salvation. This is the sermons preached by Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones in John, chapter 17. 662 glorious pages of the exposition of John, chapter 17. It's all text. There's no pictures in here. I looked through here to see if they wasted pages on pictures, and they don't. It's all text, 48 sermons. Now, don't panic because, and I know what you're thinking, I'm going to get ahead of you a little bit, I have no intention of outdoing Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his exposition in John chapter 17. I'm not shooting for 670 pages or for 49 sermons in the Gospel of John. Not at all. But this gives you some idea of the depth and the, and, and the breadth and the beauty of John chapter 17, that somebody could spend that much time just going through the themes that are here. It is truly rich and it is truly profound. So let me give you an outline of the chapter. And then let's read through the chapter together. Here would be the outline of the chapter. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself, for him coming to heaven, for his relationship with the Father. He mentions the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. That's verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the 11, the disciples who were right there with him. And he mentions them being in the world and and prays for them and their ministry in the world. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for future believers. And that would be you and I, those who believe upon him as a result of the ministry of the disciples. So verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. He prays for then the 11, and then he prays for all future believers. So let's begin at verse 1, and let's work our way through this. I'll stop every so often just to point out some themes and to show you what is being developed in the text. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, immediately there, we have obviously the relationship between the Father and the Son and the glory that each of them shares. And the Son is seeking to glorify the Father. And, of course, in order to do that, the Father must glorify the Son in the hour that is appointed for Him for that glory. And we've already seen, obviously, that throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus, Jesus has spoken of that hour. The hour has come, the appointed hour, the time of His departure. And that is what He is on, he is entering onto, is that, that time or that hour. 
And so his concern, even on the, on, on the brink of his death, is not for the relief of pain or the relief from pain, but ultimately his concern here is for the glory of the Father. Because remember, this is the one who in chapter 16, verse 33 says, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. And the world, the word world is mentioned 18 times. Look for that in chapter 17. 18 times in 26 verses, Jesus speaks of the world. And he is here praying a prayer of glory and triumph. This is not a sad prayer. It's not morose. It's not dejected. It's not uncertain in any way. This is the prayer prayed by one who could say, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against His anointed, but be of good cheer, He has overcome the world. This is the prayer of a victorious, triumphant, magnificently glorious Savior with no tone whatsoever of dejection or discouragement or sadness at all. This is the triumphant one praying in such a way as if his victory over the world is already being realized even at the moment he prays this, ultimately knowing his victory over the world and the world system is is going to triumph. And so his concern is the glory of the Father, even in the midst of that suffering when things look very down and discouraging from him, for him from a human perspective. Verse 2, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, notice the mention of the Father giving a people to the Son, that should sound familiar, we can come back to that in the next section, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the essence of eternal life, to know God through Jesus Christ whom he has sent. To not know Jesus Christ is to not know God, it is to not have eternal life. And the reason that he came is so that his people might know the one true God and have eternal life, and that eternal life comes through the knowledge of Jesus Christ who has revealed to us the Father. Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. That's magnificent, isn't it? Glorify me now with the glory that I shared with you before the world was. So where does this prayer begin? Before the world ever was. He remembers this. He knows of that. And he knows of the glory. And he is praying that he may enter into again, having accomplished the work that the Father sent him to do. He is returning to where he began. And we get the glimpse in verse 5 of where he began. Glory before ever a molecule or an atom was spoken into existence. He existed in glory with the Father. Verse 6, now he prays for the disciples. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours. Now for whom is Jesus praying in this prayer? The world? No. He's praying for His people. Is it an indistinct people whom He doesn't really know who they are? No, He knows. And He knows those who are His. He knows who the Father has given to Him. Because they were the Father's people because the Father chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world. So this glory that Christ had with the Father in eternity past before the world ever was, at that time the Father had a people. And the Father gave those people to the Son. And the Son came, and He saved those people infallibly. And Jesus is aware of those people. He knows who they are. He knows that these 11 men who were with Him at the time, they were part of His people. And those are the people whom the Father has given to Him. 
Those people belong to the Father, and the Father gave them and committed them. In his love for the Son, he gave those people to the Son. Verse 10. Oh, before we go on to verse 10. One other thing to notice here is the very clear distinction between those who belong to the Son and those who do not. Jesus knows who belongs to him, and he knows who does not. That's why he could say to the unbelieving Pharisees, you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and my sheep come to me, and I give to them eternal life. But you, in your unbelief, you do not belong to me. And this is the cause of your unbelief. You don't believe because you're not mine. If you were mine, you would believe. Does Jesus know who belongs to him? Absolutely he does, because the Father gave him a people, and he knows every last single one of them. And he will not fail to save them. Verse 10, And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as I, uh, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He's referring there to Judas. Judas having left. He was not kept in the same way that the other disciples were kept. But this one, Judas, whom was given to Christ, but the scripture might be fulfilled. This Judas, who was never a believer, has departed, and that was a fulfillment of scripture. But all of those whom the Father has given to the Son, the Son has kept them. Judas, Judas is that exception. Not given to Christ savingly, but given to Christ to fulfill the scripture as a disciple, to fulfill the scripture, that he would depart and that he would betray the Son of Man. Verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. And there he is praying for the disciples that they would know the truth and believe the truth and be sanctified in the truth, and that God the Father through the truth would keep those whom he has given to the Son, whom the Son has now saved and who have have come to have eternal life. Verse 20, now this is the third part of the outline. This is where Jesus prays for those who would believe upon him through the ministry of the disciples. So he prays for himself, and then he prays for the eleven and the apostles, we would say, and now he is praying for future believers. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but of those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and I in you, sorry, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Now he's praying there for the unity of his people. So not just the eleven, the apostles, but those who would believe on him through the ministry of the apostles, that there would be a oneness and a unity. And when we get to that passage, we're going to talk about what true biblical Christ-centered unity is. It's not an outward show that glosses over differences. It is a unity around the truth which sanctifies God's people. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And here we're back again to relationship with the Father and the Son from before the foundation of the world. So Jesus begins the prayer looking forward to and anticipating the glory that he would enjoy with the Father when he arrived back in paradise before even another day would pass. He would be in that glory and would be glorified with the Father. 
And he's anticipating that glory. And then he is praying and saying, I desire that those people whom you have given to me, that they may be with me in that glory. Does that not boggle your mind? Is that not a glorious concept? Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Now this, page, this prayer gives us a glimpse as to what concerns the Lord Jesus Christ regarding us as he is in heaven even right now. He is praying and anticipating leaving this earth and leaving the disciples here, his people here, those whom he has been given by the Father. He's leaving them in the world to do a ministry. And yes, the kings of the earth will uh, will rise up against them. The world will hate them. The world does not love them. It doesn't receive them because the world does not know the Father. And so he is praying for those whom he is leaving behind. And he is interceding for us. And so this, this prayer gives us a glimpse as to what concerns the Lord regarding us even right now, today, that we might be sanctified in the truth, that we might be kept by the evil from the evil one, that we might be preserved by the truth, that the Father would keep us and, and keep us in the world, not take us out of the world, but preserve us and keep us in the world and keep us safe and secure in Christ and sanctify us in the truth of Scripture. These are the things that concern our great high priest. So we get a glimpse of that. We also get a glimpse as to what you and I can pray. Since these are the things that concern the Lord, there are things here that you and I can pray for as well. For instance, we can pray that we would be sanctified by the truth, that we would be kept from the evil one, that we would be kept in the world for the ministry that he has given to us, and we can pray that God the Father would preserve us and keep us through this life and look forward to the glory which we will have with him when we are glorified with the saints and Jesus Christ in eternity future. Quite a magnificent and marvelous prayer, and this is the great scope of this prayer, from eternity past to eternity future. From eternity past, when the Father and Son loved each other, And the Father gave to the Son a people to save. And the Son came into the world, did the work that the Father gave Him to do. He did it perfectly. He did it fully. He fully saved and offered a sacrifice to save those whom the Father had given to Him. And now He is leaving behind those people and returning to glory. And now the Son will bring back those people whom He has left here. He will bring them to glory to be with Him forever. From eternity past to eternity future. This is the grand scope of this prayer. The redemptive plan of God hatched in the councils of the Trinity before the world was, which culminates with us, with him, in glory after this world has long passed away. That's John 17. Eternity past to eternity future. And all of the themes of John's gospel, all wrapped up, tied together in this marvelous prayer as we get that theology. Truly profound. Truly profound. And you know how this works? Starting next week, we will start back at the beginning of John chapter 17 and start working our way through the details. And the details are even better than the overview. At least I hope so. I hope I didn't oversell it. Right? Like overselling one of Dave's messages and telling you you need to show up for one of those. I don't want to do that with John 17. So let's pray. Our gracious Father, we we have seen eternity past and eternity future and, and our place in, in your plan. And our place in your plan that is a gift of you and your grace by your son and his work for us on the cross and in resurrection and even in his high priestly work today. So we thank you for that. And our prayer is, is in some sense the same as the Lord Jesus prayed for us, that we would be sanctified by the truth, that we would come to know these things and know the true God and have eternal life in Jesus Christ and that you would preserve us and keep us and sanctify us. And thank you that the beginning of our faith and the end of our faith and all of the keeping and preserving of us in this world 
is all the work of your grace. It's all the work of, of your power and your strength and uh, your sovereign hand. And, and so we can rest in you and thank you for this. Thank you for the security that we have in Christ because of what he has done. For it is in his great and magnificent name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.